Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, uh, repeat guests, Jesse Janae of Lumi and Stefan Ango, uh, also of Lumi. Uh, Stefan, Jesse, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm also of Lumi. Yes, I appreciate the intro. <laughs> yeah, a thoroughly, uh, thoroughly great introduction by myself. Um, okay, so this, by the way, all my ad libs are going to be edited out. Um, so, <laughs> this is probably my introduction too. Okay, so he, here's my first question. Uh, and I, this, uh, this question for Jesse. Jesse, let's say I have a D2C brand like the next Warby Parker for toothpaste. Uh, I have the idea. Uh, I want to create it. Uh, and then I want to get it to the customer. Walk through how that entire process works in a pre-Lumi and post-Lumi world. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of steps to starting a, starting a company. So I, I, I don't think I'll start from, from like the idea formation stage. But let's assume you have, have a great product. Um, and as most founders come up with their idea and they have some sense of how they're going to get the product itself made. Um, sometimes that's actually part of the inspiration for starting the brand. Like if you're familiar with the founding story of Dollar Shave, um, he kind of learned about a you know, razor manufacturing facility and had access to had access to supply and that was part of the formation of the brand. Um, so often we find that companies, the, the founders know how to produce their product. They start figuring out the steps for marketing it and selling it and building a beautiful website and figuring out who their audience is and dialing in their personas. What we typically see is that the aspect of figuring out how the packaging um, will look, how where it will be produced, is often thought of way too late in that process. So something that we'd see in that example, like someone has a Warby Parker for, I think you said toothpaste, um, is they've got the toothpaste, they've been working on the formulation, they've figured out that like their toothpaste works for humans and dogs, and they've like got the whole marketing strategy nailed down, and then someone um, like very late in the game realizes that they have to figure out an entire packaging fulfillment strategy. Uh, in a pre-Lumi world, uh, that usually starts off as a cascade of phone calls. People calling local partners, uh, Google searching, like, I need boxes, I need this, I need that. And there's it's kind of rife with issues because as simple as a box might sound, like, oh, I need a box, you need something custom. And it's actually a custom manufactured item. All the unboxing experiences that you see, like take Warby Parker, their home try-on experience is a highly customized printed uh, corrugate plus an insert that actually holds the glasses plus information printed onto like a paper booklet. There's a lot of components going on in there. Um, so it can be very hard to actually pull off a great experience from scratch by calling around and just talking to, to various partners. Uh, in a, in a Lumi world, a brand can find us and sign on and we have packaging engineers on our own team that can start working with us from idea 
um, work through all the specifying of their packaging, and we handle all of the production through our network of manufacturers. So that is off their plate. The searching, the wondering, the comparing various quotes with no detail and data um, is all just completely removed from their plate, and they're managing that in the platform. So it's just a bit of a snippet on that. <laughs> and, and so then what happens? How does it get from there to the customer? So most brands will sign on with a fulfillment partner. Um, a 3PL is usually the kind of term used, and that stands for third-party logistics. And to that facility, they will have shipped all of their toothpaste to that 3PL facility, and that facility will be ready to ship it out to customers. And they're probably receiving the order data straight from the Shopify or whatever kind of e-commerce platform that brand decided to use. Um, and so Lumi's packaging, the custom boxes and tissue paper and stickers and collateral that was produced through the Lumi platform also lands at that 3PL, at that distribution center. Um, so the product and the packaging kind of meet at that facility. And then that facility handles shipping out the shipments to actual customers. So that's the final step of the process. Lumi does not ship your packages out for you. Our aspect of the supply chain is just actually getting your packaging sourced and produced um, and effectively meeting your, meeting your product at the appropriate time at the DC, the distribution center. And why wouldn't you take that part of the value chain though? Like full stack, bro? Yeah. I mean, I think that that becomes like a, why wouldn't you do anything like, you know, I think we discussed this a little bit uh, last time, but like, why don't you configure all of your own servers? Like, why don't you, why don't, like, why don't you do a lot of things in your business? Like why use QuickBooks when you could use an Applicus? I don't know. Like, I think there's like a lot of, I'm being sassy, but there's like a lot of things in, in business where um, effectively working with a partner and especially a software platform that actually gives you leverage can help you move a lot faster in our world specifically um, there's 1,200 facilities across the U.S. that can make a box. Um, so when you start dialing to like find the right one for you, that's a lot of dials. Um, and you're highly likely to end up working with a partner who doesn't own the right equipment or doesn't really um, make what you want. Um, and going through um, batches of packaging is extraordinarily expensive for a brand. Like, you know, an initial batch of packaging could cost a brand thirty, forty, fifty thousand $50,000. Um, and so you can't really afford to get it wrong. And like, and then if you get it wrong, you would end up recycling what you produce. It's, it's very wasteful. So, so it's a very important thing for, for the brand to get correct out the gate. I think maybe um, to answer your question differently, Eric, it's just Lumi is also a startup and we're <laughs> trying to stay focused on what we do best. Being a 3PL is a whole different job. You know, you have to build warehouses employ people who are going to do the fulfillment and, and packing and, and shipping the, the product. So um, it's its own skill set. It's its own business model. And, you know, maybe someday, never say never, we would do it. But right now, it's just we're really focused on making sure we nail the manufacturing side of things. I think, I think another quick point when you say, like, why not go full stack? I think brands are choosing to take things in-house, but very intelligently selecting those things, right? So if you're running that toothpaste brand... Um, maybe you have someone on your team who is like a formulation specialist, like a scientist. Um, you you want to focus your resources as a startup on what makes you truly unique. And I think it's fairly indisputable that like, like sourcing, not just not the design of the box, which can be unique and, and we can help you with that too, but the sourcing of like where you produce a box at facility A, B, or C 
um, is not going to be the like secret sauce of your brand. So I think it's very important that startups focus um, on what makes them tick. Um, and so uh, that's why they, you know, outsource uh, elements of whether it's email marketing or like other elements where there's a playbook for that. Um, and I think there's not been a playbook for the physical aspects of supply chain, um, but it's kind of emergent. Yeah. Are, are there a lot of unnecessary middlemen in, in this process? I guess if we were to sort of design it from first principles, what, what would that sort of process or supply chain look like? And I guess I'm curious in a COVID world, is that sort of first principles redesigning going to happen or, or what might that look like? One of the things that we look at is some of the business models that exists in the world of packaging today. And traditionally, there's been really two major business models, distributors and manufacturers. So if you're looking for packaging, you're going to go to one of those two. Either you're going to find a packaging factory and start working with them. Now, packaging factories are super specialized. They are making one specific type of thing like a box or tape or envelopes or stickers. Then you have distributors who try to simplify the experience by aggregating all of those different types of manufacturers and working directly um, with a customer. And so if you're a brand, you might go to a distributor and it simplifies things because they already have relationships with the factories. They might be able to get you into factories that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get into. But when you work with them, they're a middleman, you lose some visibility over what's going on. You might not know which factories things are running with. You don't really understand what their decision process is. And so that's why Lumi is a marketplace business model. We're helping people understand in a very transparent way where things are running, but also get the benefit of knowing that they're always working directly with a manufacturer, uh, being able to see exactly what the price from the manufacturer is, being able to compare different manufacturers and kind of like eliminating a whole chunk of uh, potential kind of in-between people that exist. And sometimes things can be subcontracted out multiple levels and it can be really hard to see. So that's something that we're very cautious about when we're onboarding manufacturers onto the platform. We're really double checking that those are truly manufacturers and not trade companies that are representing a bunch of manufacturers. Yeah, in a COVID world, I think that supply chain control um, and redundancy is is even more at the forefront of, of brands' minds. So um, it kind of takes the wind out of the sails of like, I found one manufacturer locally who's doing a good job, or I found one manufacturer overseas who I like I heard from a friend is good. So I'll just roll with that. Uh, you can't really kind of just roll with things in this environment because having a single point of failure is not acceptable in a supply chain. I, you know, it's our position that it never has been, but I think that's becoming even clearer to folks. Um, and what Stefan said is, is very true. Like this is an industry that is filled with agencies, brokers, and distributors. The largest one did 8.6 billion in sales last year. So it's like, it's not like these are like two person agencies kind of like flying about brokering packaging. Like there, it's a, brokering packaging is a massive business. And the reason why it can exist is because of that knowledge gap. People don't know what to order or who from. So a lot of people have been profiting on that opacity for, for decades. What does uh, COVID mean for just e-commerce uh, in general? And, and I want to segue into, it's my understanding that 10% of retail spending is happening via, via e-commerce. And I'm, I'm curious as to why isn't it higher? Or what are the bottlenecks for, for that, to, uh, that to, to be higher? I think that you know, COVID for some obvious reasons, like here we all are dialing in from home effectively on a, some version of house arrest will is, is a 
near-term boon for certain e-commerce verticals. Uh, what we're seeing um, across our customer base and prospect base uh, for, for Lumi, which is all primarily e-commerce businesses, is that um, there a lot of brands are experiencing a lift. Some categories are experiencing um, a drop-off or are kind of going all the way to zero categories that are effectively not able to be used at home, like maybe a dress rental or something like that. People are not dressing up <laughs> as they sit at home. Uh, so there's some categories suffering, but the net effect that we expect is that habitually there'll be a lot of folks who had previous inhibitions about ordering certain things online. Like, oh, I buy a lot of things online, but I don't buy shoes online or I'll never buy a bathing suit online or whatever, you know? And I think that all of those kind of hurdles are being hopped through at hyperspeed right now. Like people are getting over their aversions very quickly. They're discovering new brands and, and that will be very hard to unwind. I've had a thesis for a while that, um, that, you know, traditional CPG companies like the Colgates of the world and stuff have been underestimating um, younger people's lack of brand loyalty, uh, that like, you know, literally for generations, a family would be like a Colgate house. And then, you know, now someone who's like in the early twenties is like, I don't like, I've used five different toothpaste in the past year. They don't care. Um, and they're discovering new things. I think that trend line will only increase. Uh, it'll be a tremendous opportunity, but it's, it's quite vertical by vertical in the near term. Yeah, I think the biggest category that's seeing a huge amount of uh, behavioral change is grocery because that's the category where, in the U.S. at least, we're way behind other countries. Like I think around 5% of grocery is bought online, whereas in the U.K. it's 30 In China, you, you mentioned 10%. 10% of all retail counts certain categories that are not likely to move online, like gasoline, for example, which you're probably not going to buy direct-to-consumer gas for your car. But if, if you take those out, it's still only 16%, whereas in China, they're over 30% already. Categories like grocery, I think, are really fascinating because they're very behavioral. In the US, Walmart, Target, Costco, these are institutional like behaviors. They're cultural behaviors. And even though Amazon's been making a lot of headway bringing shoppers online, the majority of Americans are still going to Walmart and Target and all those places to buy those types of products. And if they're, <laughs> if they're forced to do that online, they're going to be experiencing some of the benefits of doing it that way for the first time. You, you, you mentioned here that um, e-commerce has been growing sort of predictably uh, over the last decade or so. What, what, need, what would need to be true for there to be a real step function or, or step increase in, in e-commerce's rise? Well, I think something like a global pandemic works, but it's not, <laughs> it's not necessarily what we were hoping for. But I that's think not, that, <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing that is most likely to force behavioral change, I think. Yeah. There's other things that are more um, about the population of how the U.S. functions. Like geographically, we're a much lower density country than other countries. And a lot of states in the U.S. don't have, I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but there's many cities in China that have 10 million plus inhabitants, whereas in the US, it's it's only a handful. So mm -hmm. the logistics of e-commerce become stronger as you have more density. Same in the UK. They don't have the population of China, obviously, but they're a very dense country. So if I'm 
I'm, I'm delivering mail or I'm delivering packages, it's much more efficient to do it in a city that has density than it is in the US. So that's something that's probably not going to change overnight, right? So maybe there's some technological changes. I know a lot of people are excited about different forms of drones that might like fly down to you or drive autonomously to you. And maybe that could like create some efficiencies. I don't know what time scale that's on, but uh, those are some of the things that may need to change to make the price point more affordable. Yeah. Yeah. E-commerce is um, kind of um, associated with convenience in a lot of people's minds. And so there has to be a convenience tipping point Uh, to Stefan's point, something that is kind of overlooked in that conversation about other countries adoption of e-commerce kind of versus the U S from just a straight numbers perspective is the amount of population living not in cities um, and in places where it isn't the most convenient option. And whenever something is not the most convenient option, it won't be used as much. So like if you have a store down the street and it's stocked with groceries, but when you order from Blue Apron or something, it takes like seven, 10 days to get to you because of like your location, then it is not the most convenient option. Um, and that's different when you're in a city. So I think that there's there's some interesting stuff there. But yes, in, in general, like uh, huge world events like this that that really challenge people's status quo habits is is really what can drive compressing the timeline. I don't see, I I think the trend line of increasing e-commerce use and reliance was very strong anyway, but we could experience uh, multiple years of like habit change, um, maybe even in months with something like this. Yeah. I I haven't left my house in months. I'm not even COVID related. (laughs) (laughs) That can't be true. (laughs) Um, So when I talk to other venture capitalists, people, people are negative about um, D2C brands these days. I think Casper was sort of like what yeah. WeWork was for, I don't know, other non-tech related companies. Like Casper is sort of reminding people like, oh, it gets yep. more expensive to acquire customers. Oh, these, these, you know, it's just a mattress. These things aren't that defensible. And I think negative on, on the category in general, and then yeah. also negative on um, sort of pro- uh, products that don't have a meaningful product innovation. Like it's not enough to have just a brand or distribution. Yep innovation. What, what's your take on, on both of those, particularly the, the paradigm of it has to be sort of differentiated product um, and also just on the category of D2C brands in, in general? Well, I feel like this is where my my viewpoint can depart from, from a VCs because um, when VCs get bummed about a certain category being fundable, it's about just whether they have access to those opportunities um, and whether startups starting like those opportunities from seed stage that they can fund will end up being successful. That is different than questioning whether the direct consumer model is thriving and will do well. Because I think that we're seeing a lot of traditional companies or companies with heritage products, meaning they've had a product for 30, 40, 50 years, uh, starting a direct consumer model or um, like approaching the market in a different way. We have a customer um, that reminds me of that um, called the Spice House. The Spice House, um, I'm forgetting the exact year it was founded, but I, I don't think it's out of turn to say it's 50 plus years old as a company. Um, and they have very recently like made significant investments into their direct-to-consumer business and it's thriving. Um, so the, the VCs can't step in and fund that business. They don't, they don't need the funding, but that business is doing great. Um, so I think when you're Lumi, we get to, we're lucky to have a portfolio strategy on e-commerce um, and on uh, the direct consumer model. That's not the same thing as only startups who are doing it. Uh, so I, I, I think that's a really important distinction that can get lost in the, the VC chatter. Um, another thing, um, about those businesses in general, uh, I, I think that you, you do, 
I would say that the product differentiation is important, but I the differentiation of how the company markets itself and reaches its customers seems to be more important to me or, or uh, to to like the way I see the landscape because like you could have a product that is not necessarily a game changing product but a really excellent community or a really excellent sales strategy or go to market strategy and 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 kind of thrive so I see that as a little bit more important than whether the product is just sort of like game changing i mean a lot of a lot of DTC companies are growing fast. In fact, we don't need to name names, but they don't have a game-changing product exactly. Uh, they just have a really excellent community. Yeah, I think I think that that what Jesse mentioned about what is like VC fundable versus what is going to succeed uh, as a as an overarching shift in the economy are two different things. I disagree that brands can't be the core differentiator, and also I think that it can lead to VC like you know exits. I think native uh, deodorants was a good example of that. RX Bar was a, a good example of that. Those companies didn't take a ton of VC money. Some of them were like strapped than others. Yeah. So I think it, it's definitely possible. Um, and I think brand as a differentiator is, especially right now, a generational thing. Uh, we're seeing a lot of, you, you've heard probably the phrase of this millennial aesthetic. And that's because there's this perception among a new generation of consumers who are, you know, now in their 30s, but able to purchase products that they don't have affinity to the toothpaste, (laughs) as Jesse mentioned, like they don't necessarily care about the Colgate brand. So there's an opportunity and it comes once a generation. So there's going to be another one for Gen Z. And those, if you if you think that Gen Z is going to spend fewer dollars online than than they are the millennials even uh, i would take that bet every day so you were talking about brand talk a little bit about how we differentiate between sort of aggregators and brands in the sense of like am i going to go to you know amazon or shopify or uh, i don't know farfetched or, or something else or am i going to go to sort of you know casper's website or the individual brands website how do you expect sort of aggregators and individual brands to to inter- evolve over time uh, i think there's a huge problem there right now for direct-to-consumer because we know that Amazon, that the experience of, of using Amazon has degraded quite a bit over the past few years. I think especially as it relates to their marketplace strategy, allowing anyone to sell anything on Amazon has really, first of all, caused a lot of counterfeiting. It's caused, you know, with situation like we <laughs> have seen at COVID, like pe- people have been marking up and hoarding these different supplies. Like I think there was screenshots of Amazon where people were seeing like $400 for a bottle of Purell. This is all due to the kind of marketplace functionality that they've been building and now represents the bulk of their retail revenue. The reviews on the site are not trustworthy. So it's creating a, a, a big problem of trust on Amazon. But at the same time, Amazon is the most convenient option. People just naturally want to search there to find whatever product they need. Most of the companies that we serve at Lumi don't sell on Amazon and their primary way of selling is through their own website. But that's very inconvenient if you have to buy from 30 different products on 30 different websites. So I think there's a huge opportunity for a company that is not brand hostile like Amazon tends to be because they're like copycatting their own, (laughs) their own sellers, which is kind of crazy gathering their data and trying to understand like what they're doing right so that they can make a white label version of that product. So I think that there's a huge opportunity for someone to enable more of that. 
Is it going to be Instagram? Is it going to be some other new company that doesn't exist yet? That's that's open. And then there's opportunities for sellers and and platforms like Shopify. Shopify, one of the coolest things that they've rolled out is their payment platform, which really streamlines the checkout experience for anyone who's on Shopify. I can put in my phone number and then it will get my credit card information across Shopify websites. So as a brand, I can still give my customer an experience that feels very native to me, but I get the benefit of the checkout uh, being really fast and convenient. So I think there's a lot more opportunity in that area still. Yeah. Do you remember conversational commerce or there was just this this, product on itself? There was this Mm -hmm. idea that you were just going to see products either being written about or or discussed in either either social media or some media site like BuzzFeed, and then you were going to be able to purchase them. Do you have an opinion on that? Where you think, what was the promise of that in your mind? Like we would be messaging you about some product or something and it, it, it it would recommend, oh, maybe you want this. Or like BuzzFeed would have a review for something uh, or product would be featured and then it'd be like, oh, you might like that, you know, just just making it way yeah. more native to buy, stuff, buy shit. I feel like we do see that. I don't know how different it is from a lot of the ways that we think about advertising and paid content in general. Like I think it sounded like a bold concept that would be somehow different than paid placement and insert like influencer marketing and stuff. But I, I don't think at the end of the day it is that different. Like you, I think that we are all hopping off of more sources into a product experience. So like I will find myself on a new e-com brand's website um, because I am scrolling through Instagram or I'm reading um, an, an article or something from a friend and like it's, it's kind of there. Um, that, that is kind of, part of it, part of what you're, what you're discussing, but I just think it, um, it just isn't maybe that revolutionary. Maybe it sounded like it would be this whole different way to shop. And it really is just a different, it's just like discovering products through all the ways, like all through all the things that you look at in the world, which is, I guess at this point, maybe that was a bold idea sometime, but it just feels normal now. Yeah. I think it, there's a little bit of a business model challenge there because I mean, the traditional way you would do that is through affiliate sales. And I, I feel like there ha- we haven't closed the gap uh, around the experience of affiliate sales. Like maybe there's a way where there would be like a one-click button that you could embed on your Product Hunt website or something like that that would allow me to instantly purchase that thing. But that would assume that all of the brands kind of have that already. It's a little tricky from an experience standpoint to solve that in, in a way that feels like really easy for everyone and still gets the attribution back to like I, the the aggregator. I do think that I'm um, going back one second. I, I, I do think that we will see someone crack the code of product discovery for new brands, like some probably non Amazon company that has enough uh, weight and enough kind of uh, traffic and attention of its own. Um, and that that will tip the scales in favor of a whole new crop of direct-to-consumer brands that are more fundable and are kind of more um, in the in the startup um, ilk that we got familiar with the past five years. Um, it, it, I don't have, and I don't know exactly what form that will take, but it does seem like such a massive opportunity that it will be figured out because it is not sustainable to make, um, you know, these upstart companies compete uh, on kind of just Facebook and Google ad spend to for people to learn that they exist and people want to know they exist. Like people want to know of the new supplement company, new bra company, and like what is the best toothpaste for a toddler with a certain health condition. Like people are searching all of this stuff. And and I think that 
entire discovery will get solved um, in some way or will get made better. And we will see a whole new crop of companies emerge off the back of that. I just, I just can't pinpoint exactly how it will happen. Yeah. Let's, uh, you know, after all, this is a VC podcast. Let's pretend we were running a VC fund focused on on e-commerce broadly. Uh, we talked a little bit about DTC. Let's talk about sort of e-commerce enablement or infrastructure broadly. Let's say we were running it. Where would we be excited to to invest, or what, what do we think are opportunities for for new startups to uh, to build something uh, meaningful? Uh, perhaps, Stefan, let's start with you. Um, well, I think the discovery problem we just talked about is a great one. I think there's a lot of, a lot of um, options to solve that problem. I'm, I'd be curious uh, to see if that can be solved in kind of a meta way through browser-based functionality. Like, you know, we saw the acquisition of Honey from PayPal, you know, a few months ago. I think there's a lot with the browser that can be done um, via plugins. I'd, I'd be very curious about that. There's a lot going on with the supply chain distribution returns type of thing. One of the things that I've been talking a lot about on my podcast, Plug Right Now, Well Made, check it out, is uh, repair. And I think that a lot of brands have been very successful um, around closing the loop and selling products that are either have a lifetime guarantee or have a repair guarantee. And how could we enable repair as a service? That's an area that I'm really fascinated about because if we could solve for that, um, we could enable companies and consumers to think about the products they buy as something that is uh, a longer lifespan rather than buying a lot of cheap crap. I think, I think off the top of my head as a, as a VC, I think that something I would be thinking about as I look at um, kind of infrastructure companies, um, the trend line does seem very strong that um, a lot of e-commerce brands and direct to consumer companies will be growing um, off of the back of a lot of, you know, services um, and a lot of uh, infrastructure-related things that they will need to to work with and to patchwork quilt together to build the companies. And I think Lumi fits into that trend. But something that I would advise is ask and look deeply into whether each possible solution applies to e-commerce as a channel um, and and whether it is bol- like bolstered within t- the growth of e-commerce, or whether it applies to direct-to-consumer business models uh, more specifically as they exist right now. Because uh, the, se- the latter would be a weaker um, position. Uh, e-commerce trend line feels quite inevitable direct-to-consumer businesses, how they grow in scale, we're talking about some of the letdowns of, you know, things like Casper, etc. Um, those things are bound to morph and change. Um, so some of the most successful e-commerce growth uh, verticals and companies um, might be, yeah, in, in, in a look different uh, than, than they have for the past five years. So thinking about the difference in e-commerce as a channel and direct-to-consumer as a model, um, I think is helpful when you evaluate uh, possible investments. Well, I think the one big one that is struggling right now, but I still think it's a good idea is retail as a service. Um, because I think a lot of companies are looking at how can they set up showrooms or you know small experiences that allow them to kind of put their toes out in the physical world. And, and you know, if I'm a furniture brand or fashion or, you know, some um, sunglasses or food or something that you want to see or test or try in, in the real world neighborhood goods, beta, some different companies have been uh, trying that. Obviously, <laughs> right now they're shut down, which is like really sad, but I, I still think that's a good idea and I'd like to see them explore that. And I would be really curious if you're thinking like 
five to 10 years down the road. Um, how does that overlap with harder tech problems? Um, things like delivery type of drones, delivery technologies. I think that's really fascinating. I think we need to reinvent the mailbox. I think there's a wide open opportunity for mailbox uh, it, it, that would be, I don't know, we, we've tried the, the notion of Amazon lockers, but how do we bring that into apartment buildings, into you know communities where we need bigger places? We need like these mini, mini mail rooms, like receiving centers to arrive, for all these packages to arrive. Um, how can we solve for that? And also, I just saw with the new iPad that came out a few months ago, they're doing a ton with augmented reality and it's getting pretty good. It's actually like surprisingly good now that they've got the LiDAR stuff. You can just like pop a piece of furniture into your house and everything is scaled appropriately. Maybe, you know, five to 10 years from now, that becomes a normal experience for people to play around with. So there, there are some things that are more tech enablers kind of five to 10 years down the road that I think will, will, I don't know what they, I don't know which one of all of those will work, but one of them will work for sure. Yeah. If you're building, anyone listening to this is building Warby Parker for mailboxes, uh, blank check. <laughs> I'm not saying we're going to sell mailboxes. What? I'm saying the mailboxes need to be, somehow there's a business of like kind of taking the like locker concept and selling it to real estate developers. It goes to the bigger question of what are the, what are the ending like ripple effects in our real world that need to change and what opportunities come from that. So in real estate, like new building design for apartment complexes literally has different structural elements to take into account that you might have 300 units and they all have, you know, three or four packages every day that need to get distributed and people don't want to be tripping over them in hallways. So it's like really big changes kind of coming uh, down the pipeline that ripple all the way through to like real estate architecture. Um, so there's opportunities throughout th- that, um, that kind of whole chain, but um, but spotting exactly which ones, of course, will work is always the difficult part. Here's, I want uh, pneumatic tubes. I don't know if we can get okay. there. That's like so off topic. Do you know that? Well, in, in Paris, they had the entire mail system there was all pneumatic tubes. Now, it only works for envelopes, right? Small things. But I feel like we should come back to that. In, probably in China, they'll, they'll, they'll do that in one of the cities and it'll be so efficient and great. Yeah, let's do a whole separate episode just on that. <laughs> cool. I'm down. <laughs> Let, let's take an example of like, you know, we see something like Allbirds or see something like House or see something like uh, Casper or um, or Bonobos, I don't know, back back in the day. Like, what frameworks would you advise uh, or would you use if you were venture capitalists analyzing sort of these these D2C products in terms of their ability to potentially be, uh, you know, venture venture outcomes? Like, what are the questions you, you'd be making sure to ask? Well, I, I guess my answer would not be particularly surprising. I think the the categories that are easy wins are the ones that are repeat purchases that uh, people have to make. So that's where those shaving products or um, a lot of the subscription type of things that have been successful are, are easy to like pick out. And if a company is able to put together the right team and a great brand and sell that thing, um, I think that can be successful. But what about like are, shoes or pants? Well, yeah, and that's that's where it gets a lot harder. I think that 
some some ways that companies have done a good job with that has been um, audience first brands is a really fascinating area that is emerging. I mean, I think Glossier is probably the best example of that uh, that has like reached a certain scale, but now you're seeing it happening on a smaller scale with a ton of influencers, whether they're on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok or whatever, selling merch. Do some of those uh, influencers who started a product line become entrepreneurs and take their audience with them and actually build something meaningful as a product line as opposed to just merch? Um, I think that's an interesting area. Uh, I wonder if that has like a a venture-backed model. Glossier certainly seems to have... uh, done pretty well in that in that respect i don't feel like i have a great answer to this okay let me try something uh so i think um i think another way to um um one jump in point on on this is actually looking at the traditional competitors that the brands are kind of up against and making sure you feel comfortable with the capital efficiency of that brand like to date and then also to get to a certain a scale where they're actually eating market share from their traditional competitors. Um, and I think a, you know, a great example of a positive version of that is something like native where, you know, there's a lot of ways that they could have spent money. Like they probably could have raised more and spent more, um, but they were quite conservative and capital efficient and they're able to have an exit to PNG uh, that was, that was very positive for the investors um, in the team. Now, but they could have done it differently. Like, so every vertical has to be um, analyzed for what the what the market can bear for that vertical. Um, And I think that's where people are losing sight. They're actually porting the thinking from one deodorant company over to a vitamin company and then over to a bra company without enough attention paid to how that bra company will be viewed amongst other traditional bra companies uh, when it ni- needs to either merge, get acquired, be sold, or um, in, a, in a pull-out come eventually go public. It'll still have to be compared to those comps. I mean, I think too little attention is being paid to that. Um, it's, there's like this assumption that every e-com company, no matter what it sells, is like somehow the same and it's just not true. Um, so, so that would be something I dig into quite a bit. Yeah, I think maybe one way to look at it is you need to, going back to what you were saying earlier about you can't just innovate on brand, you have to have something else. I do think it's helpful to have, you know, two or three of the following things. Like having a good brand is really helpful. Having some sort of product innovation or technology that's inherent to your product that's unique on the market. Having a business model innovation, like can you sell something via subscription or on a lifetime warranty or something like that that um, makes your product differentiated in the market? Or do you have a special, you know, you've put together an audience somehow that allows you to sell your product. And if you have two or three of those things, you're, you're, you're ahead. If you have only one, it might be less defensible. So two, two areas I've seen companies uh, pitch us recently. One is around sort of market, like secondary marketplace for returns or really trying to figure out uh, that problem that relates to your sustainability idea. I'm curious where you see sort of a wedge there, what you think about that space. And then the second one is basically a company that is trying to uh, dynamically price um, goods that sort of solves for the secondary transaction problem as it relates to things like Yeezys. When the, when Kanye West releases a shoe and there's only a hundred available, you know people buy it and then sell it for a much higher price, and they're trying to uh, 
um, you know, dynamically price it such that the creator receives uh, the, the benefit from sort of, you know, people wanting it, uh, you know, or buying it early, wanting it, wanting it more instead of some secondary marketplace. What are your thoughts on, on either of those ideas? Uh, well, on the secondary uh, and, and secondhand and, and market, we've talked to a lot of companies on the Well-Made podcast about this, ThreadUp, Poshmark. Um, we've talked a little bit about Depop also. I think this is a really fascinating area and it's growing quite fast. One of the questions that I've been asking them is, are they able to track not just the second hand, but third hand? What happens if that product is able to uh, live through multiple ownerships over time? And is that something that they can track? I think there's there's a fascinating um, sustainability story around that. But there's also some something that is changing behavior, behaviorally among consumers. All of those companies, <laughs> for for this might sound funny, but the Marie the Marie Kondo um, Netflix show had a huge impact on their business. They all saw a big bump when that came out uh, at some point last year, and so there is this mindset um, occurring that I I hope this will stick, and I hope that consumers will think about it more. Um, and so, ThreadUp has now uh, started to turn their um, secondhand market into more of a marketplace dynamic. Now, it would be interesting to see if a company can build business model starting from the ground up with just that idea. But essentially what ThreadUp is doing is allowing other brands to use their return logistics to offer store credit to their customers. So for example, if I'm going on the website of Bonobos, let's just say, uh, since you mentioned them before, and I decide I want to resell my my bonobos. I don't want to wear those, you know, shirts or pants or anything anymore. If I was partnering with ThreadUp, they would allow me to give that give those pants and, and shirt back to ThreadUp. ThreadUp will resell it and give me basically a, a discount code that can that I can use back on bonobos. So that that whole ecosystem seems like something that could really work. The hard part is building all of those return logistics. That is yeah. something that ThreadUp has like spent years building. And I know Jesse's been in their facilities. It's a quite impressive thing. Those facilities are extremely impressive. I, I, I think that that kind of comes back to something else we, we were discussing, which is being able to play an operational element um, for brands can be a key element of whether some of these um, infrastructure ideas relating to e-commerce work or are very... Um, like how hard it is to onboard a brand to using it. So I think that this becomes something to think about in venture because there's this sort of um, allure in venture to having something be uh, software only, super scalable, uh, you know, obviously a lightweight team, lightweight, like, you know, capital expenditures. Some of those, some of those companies that try to go completely software only could find themselves um, beat out or having to merge or work with someone who actually is doing some of that work. So in ThreadUp's case, it's cool that they're using um, an asset that they have. And it's not just a physical asset. Like the facilities have a lot of technology that they custom built into them, um, in them. Like something that is that I was very impressed by is their ability to photograph um, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of things extremely quickly. Like they pull things out of a bag and they have these really beautiful photography setups um, because they have to post immense amounts of inventory very quickly. It's like an unprecedented amount of photography that you need to do to like run a business like that. So when you're set up to do that, now you can uh, sell other secondhand things. But but again, like you have to be set up to do that. People want to see 
the photograph of the real thing that they're buying when it's secondhand. So you can't just use the stock photograph that you pull from the website. You can, but now people are wary. People want further descriptions. So th- there's just a lot of thought around like, how do you actually make that um, behavior possible? Like how do you make the brand on board? How do you make the consumer comfortable? Um, and I think a lot of that has some operational legwork to do uh, that some startups um, just getting started could, could overlook. Yeah, I think... It's one of the biggest challenges if I was starting a startup in this area today is that there's really strong network effects. And so one of the benefits that ThreadUp has is that they have an ability to then sell that product, right? If I'm Bonobos, again, I don't necessarily have a marketplace to sell my secondhand products or if I'm, if I'm starting a brand new startup that is in the, in the business of receiving secondhand products and reselling them, now I have to build the demand for that secondary, that, that secondhand product. So that part can be quite challenging. But I think there's a lot of interesting um, technology problems that could be solved in this area, especially around, like you were mentioning, pricing, uh, potentially machine learning or, or you know artificial intelligence. We have so much progress happening right now around computer vision. Is there something where I can take what Jesse's describing about the infrastructure that ThreadUp built on the photography side and use that as an input to price or to sort or to do something with that product and make sure that it gets to the right person at the right price? As, as more and more uh, of commerce you know, goes online, how should we think about who are the, who are the losers here? Like, is Walmart the next Sears? Or like, how, how do we, who, who are the losers here? I don't think, I think Walmart's going to be okay. And I, I heard that, I, I don't follow this closely enough, I guess, but I know that Target had like a banner year yes, last year and was doing really well. So I think that the, some of those entrenched players are going to continue to do well. I think where we're seeing a lot of companies struggle is the companies that are really selling in malls and malls is continuing to be uh, a really difficult channel. Um, I think that a lot of the, you know, JC Penney's and Macy's and so those more discount forever 21. Yeah. Forever 21. Yeah. Mall. I agree completely. The mall based brands that are like, um, that, that where that's where a majority of their sales came from, um, that don't have a strong enough brand or product differentiation to, uh, really be successful, um, online is a very, uh, that's, that's a really rough place to be. And then I think there's other CPG companies that may have rolled forward, um, with brand kind of like generational brand, value um that uh don't have maybe they aren't actually selling a really excellent product and they could could be unseated they could be unseated in in the kind of uh you know years and decades to come um which which some of them are really large like you know like and i think some of these things like are kind of basic like i i don't this is not a prediction exactly but it's like bleach like we all buy clorox bleach like you know they have a really strong supply chain for that but that's it's not like how complicated is that product? It's, it's a, it's a chemical product. Like potentially we all get hooked on another type of product or we all stop using that product and switch over to a more, you know, uh, sustainable cleaning product. And so you're, and so we see something like that that was just a mainstay, just kind of go, go by the wayside or, um, experience a significant, significant loss in market share. I think all of that's very possible. Uh, so, uh, Stephen, you, you have this fantastic podcast, uh, well-made. Stefan, what have you learned from, you've interviewed over a hundred, uh, uh, you know, e-commerce entrepreneurs. What, what have you learned from, from people who do a great job of either distribution or community from those who only do a okay job at it? Like what's, what's something really innovative, uh, some entrepreneurs are doing that you've seen? Yeah. The, the podcast is called well-made and the interviews are, are roughly like 80% 
founders, 15% journalists and kind of meta experts who, who are involved in the space. And then 5% is just like random people that are friends of mine. I haven't invited you yet, I guess, Eric. I, I don't know. You shouldn't feel bad about that. You'll, you'll be on soon. <laughs> um, but but uh, I, I think that the thing that I've been really fascinated about is changing the patterns of consumption. And so I think the companies that we tend to feature that have really interesting things are ones that think more towards these concepts of circularity. How do we actually think about how the product from the earliest point in its beginnings all the way to where it ends can be rethought? We've had companies like Blueland. Blueland is this, um, they're competing in the CPG space and they're selling these like cleaning products where now that... Um, you are not limited by the fact that your product needs to sit on a shelf in a uh, retail store, in a grocery store, and, and take up all the space so that visually it has prominence and people want to buy it. How does that change the packaging? And they're making all of their products water, uh, water-free. You can just add the water to this cleaner when you receive it um, at home. So there's a whole category of products, especially in this area, that are wide open for innovation because the the incentives that existed in the retail world were all about packaging as a mechanism to sell the customer. The website can do that now. You don't have to do that. So there's this convergence of primary and secondary packaging coming together. So that's like a whole area that we're exploring. Um, and there's been several companies in that in that space. And amazingly, actually, like Amazon has been really pushing that direction because it it helps them if products are ready to ship um, right away. So other ca- so other um, themes that we've been exploring are things like durability or repair that I mentioned before. With durability, one of the other aspects that I've been really fascinated by is the idea of cost per wear or cost per use. If you're someone who shops in malls or in uh, you know, most fashion nowadays is sold through this kind of fast fashion model like H&M and Zara and those types of companies. There are companies that are think, rethinking that from the perspective of cost per wear. How much is it going to cost you to wear this shoe if you wear it every day for the next two to five years instead of something that's only durable enough to last for, you know, a month or a year but is made in a much cheaper way. So it's there's a lot of these themes around what does it mean for something to be well-made that we're trying to explore. And hopefully these companies are sowing the seeds of like the, the future economy that is much more in tune with um, the environment and, and responsibility that we have uh, to shift capitalism towards something more sustainable. Uh, uh, on that note, I want to talk about some of the things that you've, you've launched recently. You want Marketplace... Lumi ID and slash packaging. And my understanding is that they have to do with uh, supply chain control, uh, scaling ops teams, and sustainability. So, so why don't you uh, you know unpack the the problems and and how your uh, products uh, help solve them? I think that um, I think that one interesting one to kind of dwell on for a sec is is uh, Lumi ID is our first actually consumer facing launch. So we're very B two B. Like our our company is B two B. Our customers are brands who are these e-commerce brands. Um, so we don't have a consumer facing, you know, kind of uh, element to the company. But Lumi ID is actually a code um, 
that, and it's typically expressed as a QR code that brands can put on their packaging. They can generate it seamlessly through the platform. Uh, it actually is attached to the specification and ordering data that is in the platform. Um, and it goes on the piece of packaging. So the poly bag or uh, the box. When that item ships to the end user, so it could be you, Eric, you, you get that item on your doorstep, you pick it up. When you scan that code, it actually has information about the specification of that item. You can find out what the recycled content of the item is, what it's made out of, where it was produced, uh, whatever the brand is kind of game to share. So there's a lot of transparency there. And then the other element is it can tell you based on your geography, where you're standing right then, how to recycle that item. Um, disposal or in recyclability are like end of life for the packaging is extremely important. So often brands go to a lot of effort to make their packaging better or more sustainable. But what does it matter if you kind of adopted a, a compostable bag, let's say, compared to a non-compostable bag, but no one knows that or they don't know how to compost it or where to go, what the local facility is that can help them. Then that is sort of like wasted effort in a sense. Um, so we're really trying to connect that those dots all the way from when the brand made decisions upstream about where to produce something or what it's made out of, all the way to the consumer holding it and actually doing that thing, like recycling it, disposing of it properly, taking it to the right facility. So that feels pretty, um, pretty exciting. I think that um, it kind of really connects the decision making all the way through the end of the chain. And ultimately, um, if we all as kind of humans want to see the packaging around us start to have a lower impact on the world, we have to take those final steps of getting it to um, the proper disposal or recycling center, et cetera. Yeah, and it ties back to the marketplace because what we're trying to do in, in, on the marketplace side is help brands make decisions that are not purely based on price. So one funny thing is that actually, most of the time, more sustainable choices end up being more cost effective because the most sustainable choice you can make is using less stuff. Using less. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so that tends to be also the most cost effective choice. Um, but in the process of sourcing a piece of packaging, choosing the right kind of product, choosing the right kind of factory... Oftentimes, this gets reduced to rows in a spreadsheet where all you see is what is my unit price. And what we're trying to surface in the interface is helpful information that helps you choose between different factories that might be at the same cost, but actually one is so much closer to your distribution center that it completely reduces um, the emissions, the carbon emissions from the freight. Or maybe one of them has solar panels on their roof and actually can manufacture that product using renewable energy. And you wouldn't see that if you were just looking at it on a spreadsheet. But now as a brand, you have that extra information that allows you to make better choices. And that ends up rippling all the way down to Lumi ID, which is the, the consumer-facing uh, QR code that allows your customer as a brand to scan and find out how to dispose of that item, but also how you made your choices around the manufacturers that you picked. And the reason that's important is that is the fastest growing category of customer service inquiries that e-commerce brands have to deal with. If you go to any of your favorite e-commerce brands and you go to their Instagram or their Facebook page and you look at their most recent uh, post, you will see people who are asking this question. They're saying, hey, why is this made out of plastic? Why is this, uh, is this recyclable? How do I deal with this? These are an emerging problem for a lot of customer service teams that are struggling to explain it 
it's hard to explain. It's very nuanced. For meal kit delivery companies, the number one reason people churn is because of packaging. And so we're trying to help um, both the supply chain managers within these brands make better choices, but also communicate them in the best way they can um, back to their customers. And slash think- packaging. Oh, go ahead, Jesse. Well, I, I just want to say that I think that that concept of better better choices getting made um, is is really really critical. Something that I reflect on a lot as just a, as a person is like um, it is pretty remarkable how much um, effort has been put into consumer choice these days. Like we have an extremely high expectation as consumers of what we're what information we should have access to when we're making a purchasing decision. Like when it relates to our health, like we expect that every single ingredient to be broken down for us, that the origins of the ingredients should be broken down for us. Like we're, we're just going to spend like $20 on a bottle of vitamins and we expect like a fidelity of information that would have been unheard of like, you know, uh, several years ago. Um, and I think that B2, uh, B2C trends, like that kind of consumer trend is flowing into B2B. Like it kind of should blow our minds that that person spending $20 at home expects like complete transparency about what they're ordering. But then when someone, when that same person goes into work and let's say they work in procurement, they're going to place an order for $500,000 of raw materials coming from China and they have access to a lot less information. Think about that. Like, why would they be comfortable spending $20 and they need all this information to feel comfortable making that purchase? But when they get to work, they're fine spending half a million without the information. The reality is that they're not fine. They're, they're, it's uncomfortable, um, but there isn't enough technology to address that problem. So I think that that um, kind of slide of B2C, expect, like consumer expectations sliding into B2B is another kind of macro thing to think about um, because consumer expectations are changing really fast. Um, and taking kind of slightly too long to reach the B2B space. What would be good to talk about that we didn't get to talk about? I want to give a plug to Slash Packaging because that, that's a, a fun little thing. One, one small thing that we just launched, um, and it's around the Earth Day. Uh, I don't know if anyone tracks this. For me, I think it's like the best holiday ever invented. But uh, <laughs> 2020 is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day in 1970 after we first put people on the moon, they started to look back at Earth and thought, hey, uh, this is a precious place. We should take care of it. And so that was uh, one of the inspirations behind Earth Day. And I think it's a really awesome um, holiday type of, or it's it's an amazing idea for a worldwide event that we can all get behind. One of the things that we uh, decided to launch for Earth Day is an initiative called slashpackaging.org. And the idea behind it is to get brands, e-commerce companies, and anyone who really wants to be a part of it to put a page on their website at you know, yourbrand.com slash packaging that explains your commitment to making sustainable choices around your packaging. And even if you're just trying to figure this out and you haven't completely figured out, just being transparent about what you've done so far and where you want to improve in the future, what kind of materials you're using, what guides your process, what are your priorities. Um, if you have numbers or stats, some companies are already publishing those on sustainability pages. But we want to standardize, just like everyone has a slash about page, a slash packaging page could help your customers find out what you're doing about this particular issue. And we've created a, a directory at slash packaging. Dot org 
of any companies, it doesn't have to be Lumi customers, any companies who are um, taking that on and, and being transparent about their choices. Totally. I have a couple more questions. I'm seeing like these Shopify for X businesses, like Shopify for beauty creators or sort of mm-hmm. other independent creators. Is Shopify like a winner take all or are we going to see, you know, other sort of sub aggregators get to meaningful scale? I think we will see some successful uh, companies that um, support specific verticals, um, either purely from a software perspective or from a software and operational perspective. Uh, The ones that kind of get my um, interest particularly have an operational component as well. Um, In a similar way to how Lumi does secondary packaging, secondary custom packaging. So it means we can work across all e-com verticals, like we could sell to a candy company or to a lingerie company. Um, In a similar way, you can uh, enjoy the benefits of deep expertise and scale by, let's say, supporting all of the um, like pharmaceutical related uh, direct to consumer startups, but not just supporting them with software, but also maybe you are running a formulation house or in-house scientists or just like a level of support and like actually kind of get to market and scalability that someone like Shopify couldn't do because they wouldn't go as deep in the expertise or the operational support or the specific software that that vertical would need. Um, some of these, when you think about it, if you just look at an individual industry like pharmaceuticals or um, or like personal care, like each industry is definitely large enough to support a really key player who's developing great technology or operational expertise, um, assuming that they can get to scale. So uh, that that is the big question. Do they have enough um, kind of secret sauce of their own? But it's 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 a cool model, and and I don't think that um, I, I also don't think it's mutually exclusive. Like you might see some of those companies kind of using the Shopify API or like it, it, it depends what they try to make um, their uh, like totally unique proprietary software. But, um, but I, I, I like that specialization. Yeah. We saw businesses that, that really tried to sort of disrupt Procter and Gamble, like Brandless and Walker and company not, not achieve their goals. Uh, why, why is that the case? And, and do we think we're going to see sort of businesses like that um, disrupt PG in a meaningful way? I think that the, you know, I think that when you go out to market and you're like, I'm going to disrupt a multi, you know, multi-billion dollar company that took, uh, you know, hundreds of years or whatever, like decades to get to where it was. Um, and, and when you research the history of those companies, they didn't, they didn't say that they didn't launch with like, you know, uh, 12 different, like, you know, flag brands and stuff. They, they grew over time. Um, I, I just think, you know, I think that that was sort of the venture industry and some of those folks getting hopped up on like the storytelling of like why it was super investable. I don't, I don't think it was, I don't think it was kind of a real story from the beginning. I don't know if I'm kind of being um, too negative, but um, I think that the, the concept of brandless was like, what if everything can be, you know, two or $3, um, and I, that doesn't even just, that doesn't even strike me as as like uh, a, a core disruptor to Procter and Gamble or anything. So I, that kind of seems like it was people getting hopped up on their own stories and and the funding of these businesses. Um, but um, I, I just think in general, good businesses will be grown off the back of a strong product, strong sales um, companies that end, will end up having a meaningful disruption on a company like Procter and Gamble will. Um, take over entire product categories with like significant market share over 
you know, over time, it won't, it won't be overnight. It won't be them attacking them on all verticals at once. It just, I don't know, just seems kind of obvious that that won't be how it happens. But um, I guess, you know, uh, that's just one perspective. I think it's interesting when you look at the verticals that a company like Procter & Gamble or Unilever operates in, some of the more profitable ones have been the first ones that were successful direct-to-consumer businesses. And shaving comes to mind as a good example of that. That was able to scale up quickly. But there are very niche brands that have been established over the course of 50 or 80 years that are within their portfolio, like you know the shoe shine product, and I don't think it's going to necessarily be a successful direct to consumer to go out there and be saying we are the direct to consumer like shoe shine cream. <laughs> Maybe it will. I don't know. But there, there are there are dozens and dozens of categories that are somewhere deep into the portfolio of these like big CPGs, and it's really curious to me what will happen with those because I do think that if I flash forward 20 years into the future, there's going to be a way that people buy that thing online. Uh, maybe it's just going to be through Amazon, Amazon. but I, I feel like P&G and, and Unilever and those types of companies will need to make their way to a d- direct-to-consumer model. Will they be able to do it themselves? I don't know. It'd be interesting. I am, I am kind of bullish or excited about... Um, the products that challenge the direct the CPG categories in general, um, not with a rep- like not with a competitive product, but with a replacement that's different, because it offers a supply chain benefit as well. So, like something I think about is like you know Colgate, like they own massive toothpaste plants, like um, they they're achieving incredible economies of scale. Um, so when you work with a contract manufacturer to make your toothpaste, it's very hard to compete with them on price. But let's let's look at a counterpoint to that um, uh, product, um, you know, that his uh, brand here in LA that I love called Bite Toothpaste. Uh, Bite Toothpaste is challenging the concept of toothpaste and tubes with toothpaste tablets, uh, more sustainable, less packaging, um, really a different behavior. Uh, so that they have a they have a behavior thing to overcome there. But if that takes off, then pro- then um, Colgate is not at an advantage. Like they don't have tablet factories like ready to roll necessarily. Like, it's a whole new category and while bite builds up its supply chain expertise its formulation expertise then the the old school competitor will actually be like caught like not up to speed so you're not meeting them where they are like you're just redefining a category uh, that 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 excites me as well are there other examples where you're using that uh, what, what else Stefan is like that? Like where someone is redefining a category. Oh, I've got more like, um, Oh, um, uh, oh yeah, there, there's a shampoo one. Um, like a lot of them fit into a lot of them fit into the trend of sustainability as well. Like there's a shampoo and conditioner bar that I use called High Bar, um, and like it's an actual solid bar. So like you know, are they competing in the world of like Suave and Tresemme and like some you know the big shampoo brands? Like sure, but they're 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 doing it. They're creating a product that is so different that again the um, the filling factories and the formulation factories that the big CPGs have uh, can't make the bar um, and not in the same way. So you're just kind of um, uh, going after them on uneven ground um, and changing people's habits, which I think is a better uh, stance, like a better competitive footing for a startup. 
Well, if you um, thinking of shampoo makes me think of function of beauty, um, who mm-hmm. they do completely personalized shampoo. So that's another avenue where if uh, if I were a big CPG brand trying to re rejigger my whole factory to enable that, um, that could be quite challenging. Function of beauty does yeah. this thing where you you know answer this questionnaire and they make a formulation for you and every bottle is unique. So they have designed their whole fulfillment and manufacturing process around being able to produce one single bottle of shampoo that is like designed for you. And that concept of mass personalization, if it becomes successful, um, could be quite disruptive. And it would be interesting to see if um, CPG companies can adapt to that because they're not really set up to sell those products since they sell through um, retail channels. Another example would be like Madison Reed. Madison Reed kind of bringing home hair color um, to uh, to a you know direct to consumer experience. Um, hair color is another kind of established um, you know consumer vertical. It's been sitting on shelves for for a very long time. Um, I'm sure it has a very solid supply chain, etc. Um, but the experience of doing it at home with a custom kit um, is is a benefit. It's actually a you know consumer benefit to have all the kind of accoutrements in the box, and the box has a great guided experience. Um, and you don't have to go to the store and check out and like have the checkout lady look at you or checkout fella look at you and be like, oh, you dye your hair. So you're just kind of cutting out a lot of things that are kind of nice to cut out. Um, and and so it isn't a fundamentally different product, but it is a fundamentally different experience, which kind of, again, puts a, puts the, um, traditional CPG competitor at a, um, like on a, on a, they're on a footing there of like a bit more, bit less stable because it's harder for them to, uh, just go at you where, where you are. I take Hims and Row and other um, companies as another, you know, kind of example where um, there's just things that are kind of unpleasant to buy online or haven't been available or aren't available at your typical d- drugstore and you need like some, um, you need actually like doctor telemedicine to kind of get approved to buy. Um, those things are, are also uh, kind of great. And, um, and are hard for a traditional CPG company to just kind of replicate your experience because your experience is an online quiz or is consultation or involves a staff of doctors who can speak to you on the phone um, or video. Like those, that is not the same as just like putting goop into a bottle, right? Like now the brand has a lot more as a competitive advantage. <laughs> okay, uh, my guests today have been Jesse Janae and Stefan Ingo. Uh, Jesse, uh, uh, Stefan, any uh, last plugs you want to make sure people check out? Uh, uh, well made podcast, certainly. I, I host a YouTube video series um, about packaging. I'll, I do an, uh, an unboxing series where I unbox brands and only talk about the boxes, like give you an overview of what their boxing experience is like and how they did it. Uh, so I, I think that's that's my only plug. <laughs> I'm going to plug Jesse uh, Jesse's Twitter. I think Jesse Janae uh, on Twitter is a, is is worth a follow. It's very wow. um, the you. signal to ro- noise ratio is very good, and and she's uh, she's got a very funny Twitter persona. So I like it's that. all about quality. Don't tweet a lot. <laughs> Unboxing things. Check out Jesse's show. Go to slashpackaging.org if you have companies that you like to shop from and you want to know what they're doing with their packaging. Tweet at them. Instagram them. Tell them to uh, join slashpackaging.org. Cool. Uh, uh, awesome. It's a wrap. I'll let you guys go. Uh, thank you both for, for joining. That was a lot of fun. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.